she has an affinity for brothers who survived adversity. Came through with a spine made of steel. You know the kind. The brothers for real. Some would call him a thug, but he's the one she loves to hug. But I call it the Malcolm X Factor. That Malcolm X Factor in my man. That is a factor, you know. That thing in a man, a black man, and a well man, a panther man. My man. She loves to hug. In the boardroom, Trojan horse in a Brooks brother suit. He needs no gun, signs of black and white, and walks out with all the boots. Laughing on the elevator on the way down. Wondering, do they know the bearing gifts make a whole different sound? That Malcolm X factor, you know. That thing in a man that can make him have the heart. The nerve, the courage to go from pimping to concern for human rights. From a love of diamonds to laying pipe in the middle of an African village. She loves to hug. She loves to hug. She loves to hug. Quietly handling his business, the spook who's sitting by the door. He's got you covered and will readily go to war. She won't sell him out to keep her Versace gown. They're on the same page and plus for him. She down. She down. Yeah, sure, yeah, that love of diamonds and pretty things and long silk socks might still be there, but hey, not as a goal, just as a sure enough honest appreciation. And that love of service and commitment ain't going nowhere either. From rustling up food for Kansas City school children to serving as a bedrock example of tenacity and imagination to African youth. Mission, mentally agile, intuitively astute. 
Remember what Pop told Kadada when death was coming round? Can I go? Nah, stay here, baby. Something's up. I feel something's going down. Like a dog smelling a bitch in heat when trouble in the air gently pulls her out of her nirvana dream because sometimes femininity can be totally unaware. And that's Malcolm X legacy persists in a kind of laying on of hands and spirit and politically correct love. Hands that Malcolm might have had for Betty, Betty Shabazz, but I can't confess to knowing about that. That Malcolm X factor in my man, it's more than evident in my man, my husband, my love, my comrade, M.J. Peter, Felix, Pete O'Neill. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Mama C coming live all the way from Tanzania. Uh, and that's one of her beautiful pieces, the Malcolm X Factor, Hug a Thug. And she's going back and forth between talking about Malcolm X and talking about her husband, uh, Pete O'Neill, a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, we are celebrating El Hajj Malik El Shabazz's 70, oh, not 70, wow, no, 95th. <laughs> he would have been 95 on May 19th. Today is May 20th. And um, there were some really phenomenal programs in New York and New Jersey and other places in the country sort of celebrating his work. And his daughter, Ilyasha Shabazz, um, sort of facilitated um, a really wonderful panel discussion that was like two and a half hours. And you can watch that if you go to the um, the foundation, um, the uh, Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz um, Foundation. You can, you can watch that particular conversation again. I watched it yesterday on his birthday, and it was really, really awesome. I'm going to watch it again. And so I had an interview with Mary Baraka on the occasion of um, Manny Marable's um, publication of of the book that he had been working on for many years on El Haj Malik El Shabazz, and it was uh, it was quite controversial. And I wrote a piece about it. And um, I think before that, that was um, April twenty second, two thousand eleven, that I wrote this, and. And then earlier than that, um, July 11, 2009, uh, one of Malcolm X's um, comrades, um, Brother uh, Peter Bailey, was in town because um, he's a, 
a good friend of Yuri. He was a good friend of Yuri Koshiyama, who is now an ancestor. And Yuri's birthday was yesterday, too. She was uh, Malcolm X. I think she was like a year older than him. He was born on her birthday, May 19th. So, um, so I was trying to figure out which one of these pieces I wanted to read you because um, I think if I read both, you might fall asleep on me because it's kind of early. I'm, I'm broadcasting a little bit earlier, so I'm trying to figure out which one I should read you. So um, I'm kind of leaning toward the um, the Peter Bailey piece, but you can go to my blog, which is um, Wanda Sabir at blogspot.com, to read the um, the piece, um, the critique of the the uh, the Maribel, um book, and uh, the title of the piece is uh, "Whatever Happened to Don't Speak Ill of the Dead," and again, that's uh, April twenty second, two thousand eleven. And so, I'm going to read you this piece when um, when Brother Peter came to Oakland to visit us, and we just had a great time over over dinner at a barbecue restaurant in Oakland. So, anyway, this is what I wrote. This evening, a few of us gathered at a nice barbecue restaurant to meet with Brother Malcolm's friend, A. Peter Bailey, a good friend of Yuri Koshiyama's also, Yuri's children, students of Bailey's at the Neighborhood Freedom School in New York. It was great watching the two old friends catch up with one another. Bailey said he had the original letter Yuri sent to Malcolm X introducing herself to him and asking if she could join his organization. As the evening progressed, it was great seeing the camaraderie and love Brother Peter had for Sister Yuri. At times, Phil Hutchings would lean over and repeat to her what Brother Peter had said. Older now, her hearing was not what it was. At times, Brother Peter would stop and repeat himself for her. He also spoke fondly of Yuri's late husband, Bill as a strong presence in the home, his wife's silent partner, how he'd be at all the meetings she called. Bailey was reared at Tuskegee, Alabama, though he moved to Germany with his family when his dad was transferred there. Bailey later joined the military himself. He moved to Washington, D.C. to enroll at Howard University, where he studied for two years before a trip to New York and his falling under Malcolm's spell forged a friendship which lasted until the leader was killed and Bailey never returned. He spoke about how kind and thoughtful Malcolm was. He spoke about the plots against Malcolm's life and the training he and others learned regarding this United States government's attempts to infiltrate black organizations like Brother Malcolm's Organization of Afro-American Unity, the OAAU. Bailey spoke about how he learned about writing and security and how a sick nation afraid of its people behaves associated with Malcolm X and OAAU. He edited nine issues. The afternoon Malcolm was killed, he and his leader conversed about the current issue, and he was told not to run run it that day. Brother Malcolm stressed to his staff how important it was to use the right words to avoid slander and potential legal suits. Brother Peter said Malcolm stated as an example the use of the words murderer and killer. He was speaking of the killing of a black youth by New York police in the issue in question. 
Those journalists who used the word murderer were sued for slander, not Bailey and his staff, because they used the word killer. Brother Bailey spoke of the reunion of the Organization of Afro-American Unity members August 2006. He said the last time many of them had seen each other was in 1965. There, all five hours of unedited footage there are five hours of unedited footage on DVD. He said such an event would never happen again. One reason for this is the death of many members since then. He spoke of the book, Malcolm X, Man and His Time, how he and his comrade Earl edited this volume to set the record straight about Brother Malcolm, how they took the book to John Hendrick, Dr. John Hendrick Clark to get a publisher. Clark, a more established scholar. He said of the 18 OAAU members present at the reunion, 15 were at the Audubon Ballroom that day Malcolm was killed. So was Yuri, who knew El-Hajj Malik from his Nation of Islam days. One could see the look that passed between the two witnesses to the execution. Bailey recalled the day, the blood, the melee, in the room, what the shots sounded like, how many, the professional nature of the killing, where people were sitting, enemies and friends. At the reunion, Bailey said he put out a call for papers and has received 12 so far, even though he hasn't decided what to do with the DVD and papers. His memoir will be out next year. The conversation shifted and turned, touching on the profound impact Malcolm had on African nations and their support of the Organization of Afro-American Unity. He referenced the 1964 debate on Congo and Guinea's response to the U.S. posture that it needed to look at its own policies regarding its treatment of African-American citizens. In other words, mind your own business, Mr. Charlie. It sounded so exciting. Brother Peter recalled Dr. Clark said six countries were ready to support Malcolm's call for the world court to address the apartheid on America. When I asked Brother Peter to name the countries, he said they were Ghana, Guinea, Algeria, Tanzania. This was what he asked Spike Lee to focus on in his film, Malcolm's international work. He said Lee interviewed him for hours, and the resulting film was a big disappointment. But with the commercial backing, Brother Peter said, Spike Lee's Malcolm X is about as close to the true commercial Malcolm we will get. He told Lee to show the COINTELPRO surveillance. Lee said that he did, but if one wasn't paying attention, he or she could miss it. Brother Peter started to tell us about an article he wrote about Michael Jackson and his hatred of his blackness. I think it is published by the National News Publication Association. He spoke about the tension between Jackie Robinson and Brother Malcolm, which Robinson put on hold when the four girls were murdered in the 1963 bombing of the church. Robinson called for a rally in New York and invited Brother Malcolm to speak. Elhaj Malik al-Shabazz spoke first and was followed by Eartha Kitt, who was booed. Speaking out loud, Brother Peter asked why the crowd booed, and without knowing him, Brother Malcolm answered, because all her husbands are white men. 
when Bailey joined the organization, the split had occurred, and so he didn't meet Muhammad Ali, but he did know Minister Farrakhan. Though there wasn't a detour, one could tell there was a story there. Brother Malcolm was a master teacher, Brother Peter said of his friend. At that time, he worked as a file clerk at the Times Incorporated. What he did was create files on persons mentioned three or more times in the paper. When Brother Malcolm was killed, they asked him to pull everything they had on file on this man's life. In retrospect, he said security should have overrode Malcolm's decision to not check guests that afternoon in February at the Audubon Ballroom. Malcolm said they would start at the next event. Brother Pete, Peter spoke about the chaos after the shooting and the police inaction. He also spoke of a trip earlier that same year where France wouldn't let Malcolm land in Paris. The government sent the plane back to England. Carlos Moore was there waiting to greet Malcolm and got on the phone and told comrades in England Malcolm was coming back. Reminds one of anti-American propaganda during the Cold War, where the United States would take citizens' passports. They took Paul Robeson's, Richard Wright's. I don't know why France wouldn't let Malcolm disembark. Brother Peter spoke about Malcolm's statement that the biggest obstacle to black unity and freedom and success had to do with the psychological assault of white supremacy on the black psyche. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said such people were deaf, blind, and dumb to the knowledge of self. They were, for all intents and purposes, dead, and only knowledge of self would wake them up. When I was a kid and I hear the minister, I thought he was speaking of a zombie, not people. The day Brother Malcolm was killed, Brother Peter said he clipped an article and, and shared with Malcolm about a group calling themselves Deacons of Defense of Justice. Brother Malcolm saw the move as one worth duplicating throughout the country. Contrary to what has been said that Malcolm thought he was going to die, Brother Peter said Malcolm spoke that day of doing more work developing the Organization of Afro-American Unity after returning from an invitation to speak at an event hosted by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi. Brother Peter spoke about the U.S. government's desire for a bloodbath between the Nation of Islam and the Organization of Afro-American Unity. Yet Malcolm spoiled their plans when he took the flight for, fight for justice for black people international. He emphasized the system of racism even before the term structural violence and institutional racism became PC or politically correct parlance. When one speaks of the time between 1955 and 1965, Brother Peter said one needs to put it in the context of the height of the civil rights movement, Cold War, oppression, and violence. Brother Malcolm, after Brother Malcolm was killed, some of his closest friends went underground, like Earl Grant, who had to leave town and then the country. Peter, Brother Peter kept his friends things for two years while Grant was on the lam. Brother Peter spoke about the FBI interrogation after Malcolm was killed. They didn't bring him in for questioning right away, but when they did, he was prepared. Brother Malcolm had prepared them. He knew how to answer their questions and what questions they would at, would make. He spoke about the tricks they played, which he didn't fall for. 
as he spoke, uh, Brother Peter mentioned books which were written about the t- this time. He co-wrote The Seventh Child, a family memoir of Malcolm X by Ronell, Rodnell P. Collins, Malcolm's nephew, and A. P. A. Peter Peter Bailey. This was in 1988. And other authors such as Muhammad Ahmed, uh, Maxwell Stanford Jr., We Will Return in the Whirlwind, Black Radical Organizations, 1960-1975, Afro-Cuban Carlos Moore, and British journalist Anthony Summers, who wrote about JFK when meeting, when mentioning how misguided black people were who were so in love with JFK. He said the reason JFK sent troops into Little Rock was only after African nations challenged America's treatment of its black citizens. And if I recall his words correctly, he said these nations, these African nations, were going to send troops into America to protect us. Yeah, wow, is an understatement. Another book mentioned was Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of African-American Politics by Cedric Johnson. Um, Brother Peter spoke of finding 60 bound volumes of old Pittsburgh couriers in a closet in the Schomburg, at the Schomburg Library where a custodian was instructed to throw them away. However, he had the good sense to disobey those orders. This was just one example of how poorly the library took care of its archival materials. And to hear Brother Peter tell it, nothing significant has changed in its policy. I didn't understand why the black librarians haven't, as local and national organizations, done something about this. After all, the New York Public Library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture is a branch of this library system, similar to the African American Museum and Library here in Oakland, where our archive materials are better cared for. At least I hope they still are. I know because I'm a trustee. Brother Peter recalled one of the newspaper columnists, George Samuel Schuler, who wrote brilliantly then, he said, and the complete about face in later publications like his, Black and Conservative, 1966. His opposition to Martin King's receipt of the Nobel Peace Prize was cause for his separation papers from the black newspaper, also in 1966. Um Brother Peter's face glowed as he spoke of press junkets he organized for journalists while editor for Ebony magazine from 1968 to 1975 um, to this country and that for and the first African-American beauty contest where these five brothers sang. <laughs> this was his first time seeing the Jackson Five. A collector, he began collecting magazines with Michael Jackson on the cover years ago and planned to make them available as a collection at Jackson's concert tour. Now that Michael is dead, he has to figure out how much to charge. Adiba Ditterville, who was there that night, said to make sure there are two commas in the figure. Uh, Brother Peter excitedly told us about his serious first issue collection of black magazines, Ebony, Negro Digest, and how excited he was to see for the first time a copy of Jet. He joked with his owner that he'd better keep his eyes on his property. 
When asked about Malcolm's children, he said that Malcolm's grandson, who was tw- who was 24 now, asked Brother Peter to send him the uh, Organization of Afro-American Unity goals and objectives. He wasn't certain if the grandson had received the letter until the young man told him to forgive him for not writing back when he saw him later after his release. And I, I have a note that you can read about this uh, in uh, news1.blackplanet.com and uh, read an article about Malcolm X's grandson, Break Silence. Brother Peter said young Malcolm hung out with his aunt Ilyasha in January for the inauguration and is now at the University of Syria. He said he introduced Atala to Yolanda King. Atala loved theater. I think he said at the time Yolanda was, and you know Yolanda is now an ancestor as well, Yolanda was the associate director for Black Theater, and together the two women founded Alliance Theater and had plans to write a play of one mind about their two fathers. Brother Peter was on his way to L.A. where Atala was on the list to visit. An editor and writer for the Ebony Magazine from, again, 1968 to 1975, Brother Peter teaches journalism in Washington, D.C., and still writes for the National Black Journalism Association. Oh, and I also want to mention that um, young Malcolm is also an ancestor. He was killed. It was such a delight listening to him, Brother Peter, talk and talk and talk. It felt like Africa where the dancing and music goes on and on and on. At 10.30 p.m., the conversation shifted to the street like we we had to leave (laughs) the restaurant, not because anyone was tired of listening and talking, but the restaurant closed, um, but not before we took photos. And the photos are here um, in this blog entry if you want to see what Brother Peter looks like and Yuri and other folks, you know, when we were a little bit younger because I think this was like nine years ago. (laughs) While Brother Peter waited for Shikuru, to bring her car around to take him back to his hotel, the conversation continued. I just took photos and wished I had more space on my recorder, but I didn't. I taped the conversation at dinner, but I haven't listened to it yet. This narrative is from my notes and memory. I hope it's accurate, so it's subject to editing. Brother Peter was headed to L.A. the next day. When not traveling, he teaches mass media at the University of the District of Columbia, and writes for the National Newspaper Publishers Association, where he proudly shared one of his protege's work. And this, um, the National Newspaper Publishers Association, is a is a uh, organization that's for black papers. And the San Francisco Bayview is a member of this association as well. And I write for the San Francisco Bayview. As Brother Peter spoke, Shakuru Saunders, who just returned from New York, knew many of the people Brother Peter spoke of, as did Amara. Michael Lange, who is an ancestor as well, who is known here for his dramatization of Malcolm X's speeches. Marcel Diallo, who now lives in New Orleans, and his family were present, as were Emery Douglas, um, who is the um, uh, the former um, Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party. And Emery told me that Eartha Kitt's support was a supporter of the Black Panther Party. Uh, Dwayne Diderville was there, and he had hosted one of Brother Peter's colleagues recently at Marcel Diallo's Black Dock Cafe. I think it was Brother Ahmed. Um, He was one of the folks hanging outside the restaurant until Brother Peter had to go. 
folks in the restaurant who were not part of our party were drawn into the discussion as well. Um, Brother Peter is such a great storyteller who answered question after question but never lost the theme which he began, that Michael Jackson's whiteness was a symptom of what he says Brother Malcolm would speak of constantly, white supremacy and its effect on black consciousness. Um, And I'm not sure if I agree with that because Michael Jackson uh, had a skin disease. Um, He wasn't bleaching his skin. Um, So I don't agree with that necessarily, that Michael Jackson. um, But I don't know if, you know, we got that nose thing, so, you know. Who knows? Uh, his sister got that nose job as well. So um, here's this uh, rebroadcast of this uh, interview with um, Amira Baraka on Manny Marble, and and it might there might be other other people because I also interviewed um, Brother Peter, and so I'm not sure if this is a part of the same <laughs> same archive show it um, or not because um, I haven't listened to it in a while. But it's good, and <laughs> you will enjoy it. And I want to wish uh, Haj Malik a happy, happy birthday. And um, and I want to let you folks know as well that um, Brother Peter, um, whom I just was speaking about, he did something uh, as well yesterday uh, for, Doc, for Brother uh, Malcolm. He had an event as well. There was like a whole lot of stuff happening in New York. And uh, so hopefully some of this might make its way uh, to the web so that we can see it because it was all virtual. <laughs> Alrighty, so enjoy. And um, yeah, join us again for another edition of Wanda's Picks on Friday morning, 8 o'clock Pacific Time. I know it was no accident. Who do you believe is responsible for Malcolm X's The white death? power structure in America is behind it. They, and they, they are quick to capitalize on by saying that uh, one of his old kind did it, but they put it up to do be done. What do you mean, the white power structure? The white power structure of America. They know they had more to gain by getting Malcolm X out of the way than, than they had by letting him live. That's so, why I think. So, so what is the white power structure? Never mind. I didn't say the white power structure. You know the white race, don't you? In the last year, like Roy Wilkins said, he changed. He wanted to get along with the white people. But you people didn't want to get along with us. What does Malcolm X's death mean to you? What do you, what do you feel about it? What do you feel about it? What do you feel about it? There's a blow to have black people in the United States of America. It's what? It's a blow, he said. It's a blow. Blow, he said. Yes. He says a blow to every black American, black people in the United States. That's what he was saying. Why? Why is it a blow to you? Because he's a part of me. Because he looks like me. And his skin is me. He's a black man, and I'm a black man. And he takes up a black man's patient. That's right. He's a hero to me. He stood out among all black people. Why did he show the white man where was that? Why was he all fit in Princeton and all these big white universities? Because they respected him, too, the way I respected him. That's he meant right. something to me. That's why I'm down here. That's right. Well, they killed Malcolm X. Well, they hadn't right killed him. He was a man. I only saw him. And when you kill him, there's going to be more killing going on. And you're saying that you believe this was paid for by whites? By white people. Because what? What? What would it benefit? What would it benefit one of us to kill him? It wouldn't benefit uh, nothing. Of, wouldn't benefit us anything at all. Just a white power structure of this country. Anytime a black man in this country stands up for his constitutional rights, he dies. What does Malcolm X mean to you? He meant a great deal to me and my people. I'm sorry that a good man is gone. At the first I hear of it, 
I couldn't have cried anymore, I don't believe, if I had lost my mother. What did he mean to you? Can you tell me a bit more about it? He meant deliverance for my people. And I hope we all walk in the same footsteps as Malcolm X was walking in. make a few comments concerning the difference between the black revolution and the Negro revolution. There's a difference. When you study the historic nature of revolutions, the motive of a revolution, the objective of a revolution, and the result of a revolution, and the methods used in a revolution, you may change words. You may devise another program. You may change your goal and you may change your mind. Look at the American Revolution in 1776. That revolution was for what? For land. How was it? Why did they want land? Independence. How was it carried out? Bloodshed. Number one, it was based on land, the basis of independence. And the only way they could get it was bloodshed. The French Revolution, what was it based on? The land left against the landlord. What was it for? Land. How did they get it? Bloodshed. Was no love lost. Was no compromise. Was no negotiation. I'm telling you, you don't know what our revolution is. Because when you find out what it is, you'll get back in the alley. You'll get out of the way. The Russian revolution. What was it based on? Land. The land left. Against the land law. How did they bring it about? Bloodshed. You haven't got a revolution that doesn't involve bloodshed. And you're afraid to bleed. I said you're afraid to bleed. As long as the white man sent you to Korea, you bled. He sent you to Germany, you bled. He sent you to the South Pacific to fight the Japanese, you bled. You bleed for white people. But when it comes time to seeing your own churches being bombed and little black girls murdered, you haven't got no blood. I cite these various revolutions, brothers and sisters, to show you, you don't have a peaceful revolution. You don't have a, a, a turn-the-other-cheek revolution. There's no such thing as a non-violent revolution. Only thing, only kind of revolution that's non-violent is the Negro Revolution. The only revolution based on loving your enemy is the Negro Revolution. The only revolution in which the goal is a desegregated lunch counter, a desegregated theater, 
a desegregated park and a desegregated public toilet. You can sit down next to white folks on the toilet. That's no revolution. Revolution is based on land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. The white man knows what a revolution is. How do you think he'll react to you when you learn what a real revolution is? You don't know what a revolution is. If you did, you wouldn't use that word. A revolution is bloody. Revolution is hostile. Revolution knows no compromise. Revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way. Talk about uh, <laughs> that was El Malik El Shabazz, and we are honoring him on the eve of his birthday, May 19th. Um, he was born in 1925, which means he will be old, um, Brother Bailey. Uh, I think it's 86. 86. Wow, wow, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I think the, the correct question would have been to ask, um, what uh, what did Malcolm's life mean to you as opposed to what did his death mean to you? <laughs> um, so I'm going to introduce uh, our guest, uh, A. Peter Bailey, who is the former editor of Ebony Magazine and an original member of the Organization of Afro-American Unity, OAAU, founded in 1964 by Malcolm X. Um, Brother Bailey was editor of the OAAU News Org. Oregon Black Lash. He is also co-author of Revelations, the autobiography of Alvin Ailey, co-author with Rondell P. Collins, nephew of Malcolm X, The Seventh Child, a family memoir of Malcolm X. He assisted John Hendrick Clark with the editing of Malcolm X, The Man and His Times. As associate editor of the Black Theater Alliance, uh, Brother Bailey edited the BTA newsletter, He's a native of Columbus, Georgia, and a graduate of Howard University. And we are speaking to him from the Bethune Du Bois Institute in Silver Spring, um, was it uh, Silver Maryland. Spring, Maryland? Thank you. So what does MD stand for? <laughs> uh, so welcome, thank you, welcome. So happy you could join us. So tell us. Um, Good what morning, Walden. Well, thank does, you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you, um, you I interrupted you when you were going to say thank you, I think. <laughs> uh, I wanted to um, ask you, what what does or what did Malcolm X's life mean to you? Uh, first, I'd just like to quickly say that I was not a graduate of Howard University. I attended Howard for two years, uh, oh. and I did my first political activism at Howard. But I dropped out after two years and got involved in the movie and ended up never going back. But uh, they, I, I guess they told someone told me that if you went there two years, then you considered an alumni. So, so, but uh, <laughs> but uh, um, what he meant to me, he he was. I usually refer to him as a master teacher, and to me, there is no more important member of a community than a master teacher. Brother Malcolm, basically, uh, people such as myself, those of us who wanted to support him, but who were not. Muslims that were not uh, prepared to become Muslims, but who wanted to work with him. He gave us a perspective on the world, 
on how to view the world. He taught us. He taught us the importance of the use of words. He taught us the, uh, such things as that, as that in this in this country, uh, we're not involved in a battle against individual whites here and there, but a system of white supremacy. Uh, he taught us uh, how to about the the psychological aspects of white supremacy and racism. See, most of the civil rights leaders of that time, they focused almost entirely on the physical manifestations of it. You know, the killings, the 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 brutality, the firebombing, and these kinds of things. Brother Malcolm talked about that, and also about the the attack on our minds. Now. We know that because of the activities of the people in the 60s and, and things have happened since then, the physical manifestations have been reduced to a, to, 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 a, to a sizable degree, not eliminated, but reduced. The psychological manifestations are unrelenting and relentless, and they're constantly uh, uh, attacking our minds and our view of themselves. Brother Malcolm combated that. He taught us how to combat that, and he spoke about that. Um, on, a, on a regular, consistent basis. That's what he did for me. He basically gave me a worldview, a perspective, a, a, a way to, to look at things, a way to interpret things, a way to analyze things, uh, uh, and how to be alert, especially against the, the constant uh, psychological manifestations of white supremacy and racism. Yeah, this book that um, that you um, edited, uh, the um, what's the name of it? The uh, the, the collection of, of essays. Um, I oh, the one uh, Malcolm X: A Man in His Times. Yeah, that is so well, good. Yeah. Introduced by John Hendrick Clark, and then he also yes. introduces each section. Well, and what happened there, it? Wanda? What happened yeah. there is that a, a brother named Earl Grant and I. Earl had been a very See, I want to make it very clear. I was not a part of Brother Malcolm's inner circle. Oh, okay. Uh, I was not a part of his inner circle. I was a part, I was in the OEAU. I was the editor of the organization's newsletter. I don't like trying to make claims that they, they know that are just not the case. Earl Grant was a part of the inner circle. Mm-hmm. And after the assassination, Earl and I noticed that there were groups out there, everybody trying to claim Brother Malcolm and saying that he was with them on this issue and with them and, and utilizing his name. So we say, you know what we're going to do? Let's get put together a book of people who knew him personally and or politically and have them, you know, reflect on him from that perspective. And so Earl and I, we, we pulled together. We, we got this whole thing together. And, of course, uh, in 1969, Nobody knew either one of us, from, you know, and we had a, we had no proud, hard, hard time getting any kind of body interested in terms of a publisher. So um, we we then went to Dr. Clark and told him about our idea, and he got involved. And with him getting involved and having a you know having a name and a recognition recognizable as a as a very prominent historian, he was able to help us get a publisher, and that's how that book came about. It was it was a reaction to we were trying to keep people who were trying to well Brother Malcolm was joining my position and he was coming to my our position on this and our position on that. We were saying no, no, we're gonna we're not gonna let that happen. We're gonna uh, find a way to to stop that kind of thing and that's that's how that book came about. Mhm. Yeah, you have some really wonderful uh, 
you know, essays, sermons, and reflections, um, you know, in the first yes. part. And, uh, you know, with, you know, I really like Myths About Malcolm X uh, by Reverend Albert Cleese. That was like, wow. Yes. Really good. Yes. Yeah. Well, Dr. Clark was the, was the chief editor of the book. I, you know, I put, I did the, my main job was to do some of the research and to put together a, a an index of, 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 of books, you know, mm-hmm. that had already been written, books, major books and articles that had already been written about him. And Earl, of course, contributed uh, an article uh, that had never been published before. Uh, yeah, the last it was, it was, that was really good. I really yes, we, we, it was that. really a, and I think that we did, I think we put a, of course, we didn't put a stop to it, but we certainly, uh, in, in putting that book out and getting it out there, uh, uh, we kind of derailed some of those you know, pe- people who were trying to claim Brother Malcolm as their own uh, in a way that we thought was not reflecting what he was all about. And this, this happens constantly. Everybody tries to, to, to completely do away with, with Malcolm X, the black nationalist. I mean, they, they have, that's been going on since, since they started writing about him. They always try to say he was no longer a black nationalist. Well, we, we deny that. He was a black nationalist when he died. He lived, he believed in the philosophy of black nationalism. And the reason that they try to say that he wasn't, that he had changed, was because they were given the wrong interpretation of black nationalism in the first place. Mm-hmm. They were making it sound as though black nationalism was some kind of, you know, ignorant people who thought that black people could function in the world all by themselves that we didn't need nobody. Well, Brother Malcolm was too intelligent to have such a position. Black nationalists basically means that we looked upon ourselves as a nation within a nation, and we acted accordingly. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And we, um, we knew we had to work with, some other, with other groups on different issues, and we were prepared to do that, and he was prepared to do that. But that does not mean that he was giving up his whole concept of black nationalism. There, there's a whole... Whites in this country, from the, from from left wing whites to centrist whites to right wing whites, and their black allies cannot absolutely stand the concept of black nationalism. They fight it on every, all of them reject it. And then the black folks who are allied with with left wing whites and centrist whites and right wing whites, they also reject na- black nationalism. And the very fact of their Reaction to it makes those of us who believe in it believe that it's the right way that we need to move as a people. Because if it wasn't, we don't believe there would be so much hostility towards the concept. Right. Yeah. Um, talk about, uh, I don't know um, if you remember any particular parts of, of the book uh, or any particular segments, particularly around around the whole idea of black nationalism um, because you, you, you mean you cover quite a bit. You have a piece by uh, by Sister Betty. Um, you've got a piece by um, Ossie Davis. I mean, this is really, really Gordon Parks. Uh, you've got dialogues with Malcolm X, Part Three, where you uh, you know you you talk about the FBI. And, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And and the last part is Malcolm X abroad. Wondering, are there any particular uh, Aspects of the book that this many years later that really sort of still resonate with you. Because one thing about well, the I, I think so, mm-hmm. I, I I think that Earl's piece to yeah. me, I mean, being a journalist, you know, because there was just so much new information in that in that piece, you know, uh, uh, 
so that really, you know, captured my and it and it stayed with me, as because it gave an idea of how the FBI operated, and and uh, and some insights as to how you know their whole attempts to to discredit or to to uh, to to claim or to to uh, uh, bribe people. You know, it, it really gave some insights as to how the FBI operates. So I found that piece when I first read it. Uh, incredibly informative and educational, and even today, you know, I still uh, consider it very valuable. I think that all the pieces in there are written, as I said before, we wanted people who knew him personally and or politically, and I think that that that, that book, to me, really gave the, kind of like before anybody else, gave the first insights as to how he was respected by people across a wide variety of of of, 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 of uh, ideological beliefs. He was respected. I'm not going to say he was loved by many of these people, but he was respected by them. And you can see that in the contributions in that book. That's why I think that book, even today, is still very valuable for anyone who's writing anything about him. And I'm really I'm proud to have been, a, you know, a part of that. Uh, uh, of, of that effort. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking um, I could uh, play a piece uh, where um, Malcolm X talks about um, our roots in in Africa. He, it says that mm-hmm. you can't hate the roots of a tree. It's a really short piece. I'm sure people might be, a, be familiar with it. I'm going to play that now. Okay. Why should the black man in America uh, concern himself? since we've been away from the African continent for 400 years, three or 400 years. Why should we concern ourselves? What impact does what happened to them have upon us? Number one, first you have to realize that up until 1959, Africa was dominated by the colonial powers, and by the colonial powers of Europe having complete control over Africa, they projected the image of Africa negatively. They projected Africa always in a negative light. Jungles, savages, cannibals, nothing civilized. And then naturally it was so negative until it was negative to you and me. And you and I began to hate it. We didn't want anybody to tell us anything about Africa, and much less call us an African. Uh, And and, uh, and in hating Africa and hating the African, we ended up even hating ourselves without even realizing it. Because you can't hate the roots of a tree and not hate the tree. You can't hate your origin and not end up hating yourself. You can't hate Africa and not hate yourself. And you show me one of these people over here who have been thoroughly brainwashed, who has a negative attitude toward Africa, and I'll show you one that has a negative attitude toward himself. You can't have a, you can't have a negative attitude toward yourself, a positive a- attitude toward yourself, and a negative attitude toward Africa at the same time. To the same degree that your attitude, that your understanding of an attitude toward Africa becomes positive, you'll find that your understanding of and your attitude toward yourself will also become positive. And this is what the white man knows. So they very skillfully uh, made you and me hate our African identity, our African uh, characteristics. And you know yourself. And we have been a people who hated our African characteristics. We hated our hair. We hated the shape of our nose. We wanted one of those long dog-like noses, you know. Yeah. 
Uh, we hated the color of our skin. Hated the blood of Africa that was in our veins. And then hating our features and our skin and our blood, why we had to end up hating ourselves. And we hated ourselves. Our color became to us a chain. We felt that it was holding us back. Our color came to us, became to us like a prison, which we felt was keeping us confined, not letting us go this way or that way. And we felt that all of these restrictions were based solely upon our color, and the psychological re reaction to that would have to be that <clears throat> as long as we felt imprisoned or chained or trapped by black skin, black features, and black blood, uh, that skin and those features and, and that blood that was holding us back automatically had to become hateful to us. And it became hateful to us. It made us feel inferior. It made us feel inadequate. It made us feel helpless. And when we uh, fell victim to this feeling of in in inadequacy or inferiority or helplessness, we turned to somebody else to show us the way. We didn't have confidence in another black man to show us the way, or black people to show us the way. In those days, we didn't. We didn't think a black man could do anything but play some horn, you know, some sound, and make you happy with some songs, and in that way. We, but when, in serious things, where our food, clothing, and shelter was concerned, and our education was concerned, we turned to the man. We never thought in terms of bringing these things into existence for ourselves. We never thought in terms of doing things for ourselves, because we felt helpless. And what made us feel helpless was our hatred for ourselves. One of the things that made the Black Muslim Movement grow was its emphasis upon things African. This was the secret to the growth of the Black Muslim Movement. African blood, African origin, African culture, African ties. And you'd be surprised. We discovered that deep within the subconscious of the black man in this country, he's still more African than he is American. He thinks that he's more American than African because the man is jiving him and the man is brainwashing him every day, telling him, you're an American, you're an American. Man, how could you think you're an American and you have never had any kind of American treat over here? You have never, never. Ten men can be sitting at a table eating, you know, dining. And I can come and sit down where they're dining. They're dining. I got a plate in front of me, but nothing is on it. Uh, because all of us sitting at the same table are all of us diners. I'm not a diner until you let me dine. Then I become a diner. Just being at the table with others who are dining doesn't make me a diner. And this is what you got to get in your head here in this country. Just because you're in this country doesn't make you an American. And no, you got to go farther than that before you can become an American. You've got to enjoy the fruits of Americanism. And you haven't enjoyed those fruits. You've enjoyed the thorns. You've enjoyed the thistles. But you have not enjoyed the fruits. No, sir. So I point these things out, brothers and sisters, so that you and I will know the importance in 1965 of being in complete unity with each other, harmony with each other, and not letting the man maneuver us uh, into fighting one another. I say that again that I'm not a racist. I don't believe in any form of segregation or anything like that. I'm for the brotherhood of everybody, but I don't believe in, in forcing uh, brotherhood upon people who don't want it. As long as we practice brotherhood among ourselves, and then others who want to practice brotherhood with us, we practice it with them also, we're, we're for that. But I don't think that we should run around trying to love somebody who doesn't love us. Thank you. Wanda. Well, I would love you to share perhaps uh, some reflections on, on 
and I, I believe you would say your friend, uh, Ahaj Malik El Shabazz, and and what it was like being uh, what I what what, what I will say. Okay, mm-hmm. what I will say to you now is what you, what what you just played is an absolutely yes. quintessential example of Malcolm X, the master teacher. Uh-huh. He was teaching. He was teaching. And and, 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 and and he was a teaching, and he was doing the other things that I had talked about before. He was talking about the psychological effects of white supremacy slash racism. So he was teaching. That was a classic example of Malcolm X, the master teacher in action. And, and, he, and then he spoke like that time after time after time. That's what I learned. I remember, I'm old enough to remember going to movies in Tuskegee, Alabama, which is my home, and sitting in segregated movie theaters, a whole movie theater full of black kids between the ages of about 8 and 12, and we were sitting in those movie theaters Saturday after Saturday cheering Tarzan and his chimpanzee, Cheetah, as they beat up on 40 or 50 African warriors. I remember that the image of Africa that was presented to us when I was a child. I'm old enough to remember that. And that's what Brother Malcolm was talking about, the psychological aspects of white and, and And what you just played, for everybody who listened, that was a – and now nowadays that may not sound so much, but back in the 60s when he was saying that, that was almost – that was ideologically, that was revolutionary. Because at that time, many black people still had this very negative attitude towards Africa. Some of them still have it today. So that was Malcolm X, the master teacher in action. That's what I meant. That's what I remember about him. That's what I learned from him. I learned, and and his and his his speak his talking about Africa was not just based on some kind of emotional romantic thing. His position that he gave me in an article the day before he was assassinated was that we needed to have contact with Africa because a strong Africa would be an umbrella of support for people of African descent, no matter where they were in the world. And he used the example of China. He said, when I was growing up, people used to say, you don't have a Chinaman's chance which means that your chance of doing something was nil. He said, they don't say that no more. Why they don't say it no more? Because China is now a force on the world scene. So a strong China provides an umbrella of protection for people of Chinese descent all over the world. And he was saying that that's the same position that Africa should have for people of African descent. So it was not not just an emotional, uh, psychological connection that he was talking about. He was talking about something very practical. That's Malcolm X, the master teacher. You picked a classic example of it. And I'd like to also respond to the first speech that you did when he sounded so angry. People have to to understand that between 1955 and 1965, when Brother Malcolm was on on the scene, there was rampant terrorism going on in this country. And I'm using that word terrorism was going on in this country. People were being lynched. People were being run out of their homes. They were losing their jobs. That was the height of the civil rights movement. And, and you can see, you can just list names of people who were killed just because they were involved in the civil rights movement by white supremacists and racists. And, brother, so, and this was after the bombing of those little girls. So if he sounded angry, he should sound angry. People listen to that speech now, and they say, man, he sounds so hard. Why was he so angry? He was angry because there was rampant terrorism going on in this country between 1955 and 1965, and nobody was being punished for it. 
That's what I always tell people when they say how angry he was. He had a right to be angry. A church had been firebombed and killed four little black girls. When you uh, when you visited us a while back uh, to see your good friend, friend uh, Yuri Koshiyama, whose birthday mm-hmm. is also May nineteenth, she's I think she's like a year or two older than uh, Malik Al Shabazz, and she was a good friend of his, and he wrote her and visited her at her home. Uh, I was uh, you you spoke about how um, Malik was was always reading and studying, and uh, he took time out you know, to, to speak to individuals, uh, you know, like yourself and, you know, give mm-hmm. you some, like, real, you know, one-on-one uh, quality time. Yeah, and he was constantly. Sort of talk about it. Yeah. Uh-huh. He was constantly, I mean, like like any truly intelligent person, he was constantly learning. Mm-hmm. He was a great listener. One of the most important right. things to be a great leader, you have to also be a great listener. And Brother Malcolm was a great listener. I sometimes I would when I was watching him, when we would like be a group of people and people are talking and and he you could almost see you could see him him listening to what was what was being said, you know. And that's that's the, that's another mark of a truly great leader. And uh, I tell young people sometimes I I teach as an adjunct professor at the University of District Columbia, and I tell my students, man, one of the most important things that you must learn is to be a listener. You have to know how to listen to what is going on. And Brother Malcolm was a master of that. And that's another reason why he was able to to accomplish the things that he did. And that's another thing I remember about him. He was a courteous person. He was one of the most courteous people I've ever met in my life. He was very considerate of people. He was very, very, very uh, uh, concerned. He was courteous, the old-fashioned courtesy. Uh, when he spoke with you or when he dealt with you. And and uh, and that was, you know, those are things, you know, that I remember about him from a personal level. I had the, I had the opportunity sometimes of being in a situation where it might be him and myself uh, and maybe four or five other people, so it was like a small setting and where you could really see him, you know, interact with people and talk and laugh and joke, you know, and that kind of thing. I had a, a, at least maybe three three times when I had that, that uh, that honor and and so you begin you see him in another light uh, than when you see him speaking to a large crowd, you know, at, at a rally or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you you edited the uh, the newspaper uh, for the OAAU. Uh, talk about that, and also talk about you know your your colleagues, uh, the people around you, and some of your interaction and. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, it was what? really not a newspaper. It was a newsletter, uh, okay. and 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 when the OAA was being formed, and people were taking various positions to do things in the organization. You know, we had different committees: a cultural committee, a youth committee, an economic development committee, an education committee, etc. Uh, nobody volunteered to do the newsletter, so I volunteered to do it. At that time, I haven't had no journalism at all, but I volunteered to do the newsletter, and that's how I became the editor of the newsletter. We put out nine issues. Uh, we, we, we reported on his trips abroad when nobody else was doing so. Uh, I have copies of all nine issues. The, the first three issues we was referred to as the OAAU newsletter 
beginning with the fourth issue, we called it the Blacklash. Uh, and we, were, we did that because there was a lot of talk at the time about the white backlash against, you know, against uh, progress that black people were making. So we decided to call the newsletter the Blacklash. Uh, that's how it got, it got that name. But uh, we put, we had photos. I mean, we did a good job considering that we were working with, you know, the old-fashioned mimeograph machine. We had to turn the wheel, turn the handle, to, you know, to make copies and everything. Uh, uh, but eventually, Brother Malcolm told me, uh, in fact, the, the day of the assassination, he told me that he was going to make turn the newsletter. One of his plans was to turn the newsletter into a tabloid-sized newspaper. You know, as for my colleagues, man, some of the most committed dedicated, intelligent, and brilliant people that I ever met were people that I met when I was that doing that those 14 months with the OAAU. I mean, the people who headed the Cultural Committee and the Education Committee and the Youth Committee and the Economic I mean, these were serious brothers and sisters who had, you know, who had skills and talent, who probably could have been out doing anything, but they were committed to what was going on. So we had a real cadre of of, of, of top quality people uh, involved with the OAAU, and uh, and I think you know the forces who who operated around here knew that the forces who, who were hostile to Brother Malcolm knew that that he was attracting he had that ability because people always try to make it sound as though the only people who listened to Brother Malcolm were the quote unquote street folks you know the the homeboys and the homegirls from the streets well that's simply not true. They listened, but there were also a whole lot of other folks, you know, uh, who 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 uh, who listened to him and who were prepared to work with him uh, for the advancement, you know, of our people. Uh, and 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 I saw those people in the, in the OAAU. Mm-hmm. Most right. of the o, most of the o, I would say that ninety percent of the OAAU members were not Muslims. Because he had set up a separate organization called Muslim Mosque Incorporated for those people, you know, who were who were supporting him from a religious perspective. But the OAAU people were those of us who wanted to work with him, but who were not prepared to become Muslims. Some of them were strong. Some of them were very strong Christians, but they still believed in what he was doing from a political, economic, cultural perspective, and and wanted to work with him. So he had the ability to attract uh, a variety of people. So when you uh, started working with uh, Brother Malcolm, you started working with him uh, when he had established the uh, the uh, organization of Afro-American Unity, or had you been working with him prior to that? Did you come in? At that I, I had not been. I had been following him since 1962 was when I first okay. heard him speak. So I became a follower then, but I could not work with him because I was not prepared to become a member of the Nation of Islam. When the OAAU was founded, I was a founding member. I went to the meetings where where, they, where the, there was discussion about the organization. Beginning in in, in January 1964, we used to meet and start format, form, uh, organizing the OAAU. It was announced publicly in June of 1964. But we had been meeting since January, uh, you know, preparing for that public announcement of the organization. So I was there, you know, at the beginning. When it was being, you know, structured. Mhm. Right. Right. Um, so you you were following him when he went uh, to went on his um, 
pilgrimage to Mecca on to Hajj, and you were following him when he uh, went to the uh, Organization of African Unity uh, session. Yes. I believe that was in Egypt, right? Cairo, 1964. Yeah, exactly. From 1962, mm-hmm. when I first heard him speak, until this day, I'm a, I became a, I'm a Mal- I've been a Malcolmite. From the first time I heard him speak in June 1962 until the, right now when we're talking, I have been a Malcolmite. And I was there mm-hmm. during that stretch when he was in Cairo, you know, in 1964. I remember that was an important event because it was the first time that an African-American had been invited to be an observer at a meeting of African heads of state, not a participant, but an observer. He had been invited to be there as an observer, and he used that opportunity to push his campaign. He had an, he had a, a plan of having the United States government taken before the U.N. Commission on Human Rights for, quote-unquote, being either unable or unwilling to protect the lives and property of black people in this country. Again, I have to remind the audience of what was going on during that time. It was a time of intense brutality. Terrorism was rampant throughout the South in this country during that time. And and, and, and so he was going to, and the government was claiming that it couldn't do anything because it was the state's problem. So he was planning on developing, and when he went to the OAU uh, meeting in Cairo, he began to lay the foundation for this appeal of taking going before the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, which is why the, o, we, the OAU, we called ourselves a human rights organization, not a civil rights organization, because human rights is the international term. Right. So when you were at the, the meetings establishing the Organization of Afro-American Unity, how uh, did you all negotiate the the structure of the organization in the diaspora because clearly it was inspired by the OAU. Yes, that was that was that was that's how the name came about. Right. That's why Brother Malcolm selected that name. Uh, right. Uh, the organization of African unity, the organization of Afro American unity. Right. Uh, so <laughs> the very, at the very first at the very first meeting, uh, he told us that that was you know that was what he wanted to call the organization. Yeah. So with regards to um for our audience that might not be aware of the principles and and the philosophy behind the OAU and the OAAU, I was wondering, uh, were there parallels? I'm sure there are parallels besides the name, so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about uh, It was an attempt the, it was just as the OAU was an attempt to, to bring the African countries together so they could act in some kind of unified manner. You know, in dealing with other people, the OAAU had the same purpose. It was an effort to bring in African-American people from all different kinds of uh, religions and beliefs and that kind of thing, bring them together in an organization where we could work together to advance our interests in this, you know, in this, in this country and in this world. That was the purpose. That's what. That's why it had that, that name, and and and. Uh, 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 and, and Brother Malcolm, was, you know, he had reached out to some of the other civil rights leaders to, you know, to try to get them to understand that's what he was trying to do, you know. Uh, and so, but so, but that was the purpose to try to bring together. And within the, within the OAU itself, we had that kind of variety. And I and I definitely believe that had, had he not been assassinated, we would have grown. That organization would have grown to become a very very uh, a major uh, contributor to the to the progress. Uh, uh, of our people in this in this country and in and in the world. 
right now uh, on the continent this past year was the, uh, I think, the third edition of the uh, World Festival of Black Art and Culture. Uh, and one of the themes that uh, President uh, of, of um, Senegal you know, spoke of over and over again was the United States of Africa. And and that seems right in keeping with the message that El Hajjali pushed was like, you know, unification yes. and unity. Yes, he uh, was a, he was a strong believer in the concept of Africa. He believed that he was a what we call a pan Africanist. He believed that there should be some kind of unified uh working together, a unified uh, uh promoting our interests of people of African descent, no matter where they were in the world. That includes South America, Europe, the Caribbean, uh, and on the continent. He, he just believed that people of African descent throughout the world, we would, be, we would advance our, and protect our interests much more effectively if we had some kind of you know, unified working. Does that mean that everybody's going to be exactly the same? No. But it meant that we would look upon ourselves as a unit, as pan-Africanists, so that so that anything that affected people of African descent, no matter where they were in the world, we had a stake in, in taking care of that, just like the Chinese do with the Chinese people, just like the Jewish people do with Jewish people. If you mess with Jewish people anywhere in the world, they they are fed the Jewish community based out of Israel is ready to, to, to confront you. I don't care where it is. Well we wanted the same thing with people of African descent. And the same thing that the Chinese provides for people of Chinese descent. Right. right. Yeah. I'm yeah. I, I mean I hear it a bit, but but uh uh how how much longer do we have? Um, we have um another uh Fifteen, twenty minutes, uh, more like, uh, yeah, more fifteen minutes. Okay, are you going to play another well, tape? I could. Um, okay, because I, I tell you why, because I'm I'm sitting at my, I'm at my office, and I'm sitting yes. at my receptionist's desk, and I gotta, oh, I gotta move <laughs> to my desk so she can okay. have her desk. So I would say when you yeah. play another tape, then I can go. Yeah, I'll play. <laughs> I can put it on hold and go and go, to, you know, go to my desk. Okay, yeah, well, I'll play uh, the uh, speech that Al-Hajmalik made uh, when, in Detroit after his house was bombed. Okay, and then I'll be, I'll be, I'll go to my desk <laughs> and then back. I'll, from there. okay. Okay, all right. Distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends and enemies. I want to point out first that I'm very happy to be here this evening, and I'm thankful for the invitation to come here to Detroit this evening. Uh, I was in a house last night that was bound my own, but I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all, but you know what happens when fire dashes through, they get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And. Uh, It isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing because my wife understands and I have children from this size on down and even in their young age they understand. I think they would rather have a father or brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of 
any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people, uh, rather than to compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in disgrace. So I just ask you to excuse my appearance. I don't normally come out in front of people without a uh, shirt and a tie. I guess that's somewhat a holdover from the Black Muslim movement, which I was in, and that's one of the good aspects of that movement. It teaches you to be very careful and conscious of how you look, which is a positive contribution on their part. But that positive contribution on their part is greatly offset by too many other liabilities. Before I get involved in anything nowadays, I have to straighten out my own position. And, which is clear, I am not a racist in any form whatsoever. I don't believe in any form of racism. I don't believe in any form of discrimination or segregation. I believe in Islam. I'm a Muslim. And there's nothing wrong with being a, being a Muslim. Nothing wrong with the religion of Islam. That just teaches us to believe in Allah as a God. And those of you who are Christians probably believe in the same God. Because I think you believe in the God who created the universe. And that's the one we believe in, the one who created the universe. The only difference being, we call him uh, God, and, and I, we call him Allah. Jews call him Jehovah. If you could understand Hebrew, you'd probably call him Jehovah too. Uh, if you could understand Arabic, you'd probably call him Allah. But since, since the white man, your friend, took your language away from you during slavery, the only language you know is his language, you know, your friend's language. So you call him, you call for the same God he calls for. When he's putting a rope around your neck, you call for God, he calls for God. And you, and you wonder why the one you call on never answers you. Now, when I was in the black Muslim movement, I wasn't, they didn't have the real religion of Islam in that movement. It was something else. And, uh, but the real religion of Islam doesn't teach anyone to judge another human being by the color of his skin. The yardstick that is used by the Muslim to uh, measure another man is not the man's color, but the man's deeds, the man's conscious behavior, the man's intention. And when you use that as a standard of measurement or judgment, you never go wrong. But when you just judge a man because of the color of his skin, then you're committing a crime. Because that's the worst kind of judgment. If you judge him just because he was a Jew, that's not as bad as judging him because he's black. Because a Jew can hide his religion. He can say he's something else. And which a lot of them do that. They say they're something else. But the black man can't hide. When they start indicting us because of our color, that means we're indicted before we're born. Which is the worst kind of crime that can be committed. Elijah Muhammad had taught us that the white man could not enter into Mecca in Arabia, and all of us who followed him, we believed it, and he said the reason he couldn't enter was because he's white and inherently evil, it's impossible to change him. And uh, the only thing that would change him is Islam, and he can't accept Islam because by nature he's evil. And therefore, by not being able to accept Islam and become a Muslim, he could never enter Mecca. And uh, this is how he taught us. And, you know, and so when I got over there and went to Mecca and saw these people who were blonde and blue-eyed and pale-skinned and all those things, I said, well, but I, I watched them closely, and I noticed that there was, though they were white, and they would call themselves white, there was a difference between them and the white one over here. 
And that basic difference was this. Uh, in the in Asia or the Arab world or in Africa, where the Muslims are, if you find one who says he's white, uh, all he's doing is using an adjective to describe something that's inc incidental about him, one of his inc incidental characteristics. So there's nothing else to it. He's just white. But when you get the white man over here in America and he says he's white, he means something else. You can listen to the sound of his voice when he says he's white. He means he's boss. That's right. That's what white means in this, in this language. If you know the expression free, white, and 21, he made that up. He's letting you know all of them mean the same. White means free, boss. He's up there. So that when he says he's white, he has a little different sound in his voice. And I know you know what I'm talking about. And despite the fact that I saw that Islam was a religion of brotherhood, I also had to face reality. And when I get back into this American society, I'm not in a society that practices brotherhood. I'm in a society that might preach it on Sunday, but they don't practice it in on no day, on any day. And so since I could see that America itself is a society where there is no brotherhood, and that this society is controlled primarily by racists and segregationists, and it is, uh, this is a society whose government doesn't hesitate to inflict the most brutal form of punishment and oppression upon dark-skinned people all over the world. Uh, to hit right now what's going on in, in, uh, near, uh, in and around Saigon and Hanoi and in the Congo and in, and in elsewhere. They are violent when their interests are at stake. But that, with all of that violence that they display at the international level, when you and I want just a little bit of freedom, we're supposed to be nonviolent. They're violent. They're violent in Korea. They're violent in Germany. They're violent in the South Pacific. They're violent in Cuba. They're violent wherever they go. But when it comes time for you and me to protect ourselves against lynchers, they tell us to be nonviolent. We should defend ourselves. And when I say that we should defend ourselves against the violence of others, they, they use their press skillfully to make the world think that I'm calling on violent spirit. And I wouldn't call on anybody to be violent uh, without a cause. But I think the black man in this country, above and beyond people all over the world, will be more justified when he stands up and starts to protect himself, no matter how many necks he has to break and heads he has to crack. I saw in the paper where they, in the, on the television, where they took this black woman down in Selma, Alabama, and knocked her right down on the ground, dragging her down the street. You saw it. You're trying to pretend like you didn't see it because you knew you should have done something about it and didn't. Uh, it showed the sheriff and his henchmen throwing this black woman on the ground. On the ground. And Negro men standing around doing nothing about it. Saying, well, let's overcome them with our capacity to love. What kind of uh, phrase is that? Overcome them with our capacity to love. And then it disgraces the rest of us because all over the world the picture is flashed showing a black woman with, a, with some white groups with their knees on her holding her down and black and full-grown black men standing around watching it. Why, you are lucky to let you stay on earth, much less stay in the country.
When I saw it, I dispatched a wire to Rockwell. Rockwell was one of the agitators down there. Rockwell, this Lincoln Rockwell. And the wire said, in essence, that this is to warn him that I am no longer held in check from fighting white supremacists by Elijah Muhammad's separatist black Muslim movement. And that if Rockwell's presence in Alabama causes harm to come to Dr. King or any other uh, black person in Alabama who's doing nothing other than trying to uh, enjoy their rights, then Rockwell and his Ku Klux Klan friends would be met with maximum retaliation from those of us who are not handcuffed by this nonviolent philosophy. And I haven't heard from Rockwell since. And brothers and sisters, if you and I would just realize that once we learn to talk the language that they understand, they will then get the point. You can never reach a man if you don't speak his language. If a man speaks the language of brute force, you can't come to him with peace. Why, good night. He'll break you in two, as he has been doing all along. Uh, if a man speaks French, you can't speak to him in German. If he speaks Swahili, you can't communicate with him in Chinese. You have to find out what does this man speak. And once you know his language, you learn how to speak his language. And you'll get the point. There'll be some dialogue, some communication, and some understanding will be developed. And uh, you've been in this country long enough to know the language the Klan speaks. They only know one language. And what you and I have to start doing in 1965, I mean, that's what you have to do, because most of us already been doing it, is start learning a new language. Learn the language that they, that, they, that they understand. And then when they come upon our doorstep to talk, we can talk. And they will get the point. There will be a dialogue. There will be some communication. And I'm quite certain they will, there will then be some understanding. Why? Because the Klan is a cowardly outfit. They have, they have uh, perfected the art of making Negroes be afraid. And as long as the Negroes are afraid, the Klan is safe. But the Klan itself is coward. And they never come, one of them never come after one of you. They all come together. And they're scared of you. And you sit there when they put the rope around your neck saying, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. As long as they've been doing it, they're experts at it. They know what they're doing. Okay. Brother Peter, are you back? Yes. Another <laughs> another classic example of the master teacher. Now, mm -hmm. I think when you listen to him, you can see why I use that term. He was a master teacher. The, and he knew the analogy. He was a communicator. He knew how to, he could speak to, to PhDs at Harvard or Oxford or Howard, but he could also speak the language that could be understood by folks, you know, just regular folks. When he used those analogies and those anecdotes, they knew exactly what he was talking about. That's the ability of a great leader, that he can't just speak to one group of people. He can speak to a, a whole wide spectrum. He can communicate with
Oh man, when you when I listen to that stuff, man, I just be saying to myself, that's a master teacher in action. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the uh, seventh seventh child, um, the book that you co-authored with Baj Malik El Shabazz's nephew, Rodney Collins. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he's and he writes in this book about how his mother, uh, his uncle's, um, you know, really close close aunt, whom he uh, stayed with for a bit when he was a child and would visit often. She started writing this book. She started, I think, like it was over twenty years. It was like her a life's work that he picked up when she was no longer able to continue. Yeah, well, well, the the book Seventh Child, the family memoir of Malcolm X, is is basically the memoir of Sister Ella Collins, who was the sister that that Brother Malcolm was to live with when I think he was fourteen years old, when she brought him to Boston to live with her. The book is basically her memoirs as told to her son Rodnell Collins. Uh, they brought me in on it. Uh, to help them because I, you know, I was a journalist and a writer, and they neither one of them were, so they they brought me in to kind of help, you know, write, get the book organized and structured in a way. But but it's there, it's it's her memoirs as reflected, you know, as she told to to her son Rodnell, who was Brother Malcolm's nephew, and of course Sister Ella. One thing you, I found out in working on that book and in reading letters between them and things of that type, that she was one of his major confidants. She, it was, in fact, one of the things I found fascinating about working on that project is that you, you, you actually can see Brother Malcolm seeking advice and information and, 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 condole, and, and, and kind of sympathy from his big sister. She, she was the older, she was the big sister. And uh, and he was the the little brother talking to his big sister. Uh, you can see that in some of the you know in, in some of the their correspondence with each other. It was it was fascinating because it provided another very kind of human human look at him. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just the you know the great leader and the great communicator and and debater and thinker and intellectual, but also hey, I got I, I need to get I need to get some advice from my big sister. And she she played that role for him. Right. Yeah. And and just in the part of the book that I read, because I didn't finish it. However, I do recommend it that it be you know on the list of those who want to find out more about you know Brother Malcolm's life. Certainly, I, I certainly recommend this book. When she was talking about how when um, Brother Malcolm's mother was institutionalized mental illness and I didn't realize she had been there for so long and uh, and uh, and she talked about her siblings and how there was a split in the family how they didn't want to to let their little brother uh, be a part of the family so you could you could talk about that because that uh, yeah but she uh, you, you know, know what it was um, yeah. what it was was that sister Ella's Sister Ella and Brother Malcolm had the same father, who was Earl Little Sr. Earl Little Sr.'s first wife was named Daisy Mason down in Georgia, 
where where the where they where you know where they were born, the little family. When I one of the things I been working on that book, I had an opportunity to go down to these two counties down in rural Georgia and actually meet members of the little family who uh, uh, who are connected with him. And I even went to a little family reunion. But but um, but Earl Senior was married to, to Daisy Mason, and they split. They had three children: Sister Ella, Mary, and Earl Junior. And then the two of them split up, and Earl Senior left Georgia and and you know came north, and 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 it was in it was there while he was up, I think, up in Montreal, where he met um, the woman who became Brother Malcolm's mother. Uh, and of course, there was this this thing between you know the Mason family, which was you know his first wife's family, and and Earl Little. They were you know they were kind of resentful of. of of the way that ma- the first marriage ended, and so when 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 Sister Ella when 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 Earl Senior was 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 killed by white supremacists in uh, in in uh, in Michigan, and I think it was in no, it was in in Lansing. I think it would happen. Uh, Sister Ella, you know, had contact with her with her her uh, half brothers and sisters, and she said she wanted to bring all of them to Boston. But her mother and her aunt, who was still very resentful of the father, wouldn't allow her to do it. But she finally convinced him to let her bring Brother Malcolm. And that's how he got to Boston, to live with her. Uh, he was, she, she really, uh, according to what she said and what Ronell, she told Ronell and we said in the book, she, was, she wanted to bring all the, the, you know, Brother Malcolm's siblings to Boston to live with her. But her mother and her aunt, Again, because of their hostility toward Earl Senior, would not allow that to happen. So she ended up just bringing, being able to bring Brother Malcolm, and she had to really work hard because they were all living together. Mm-hmm. She had to work hard to get, you know, to convince them to let her let her bring him. Right. Yeah. And uh, in the book, uh, one thing uh, in the part that I finished was about how uh, the whole thing was about the family and keeping the family together and uh and 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 his aunt um Ella was you know she really that she she really felt really strongly about that as did uh Elhaj Malik and uh and he was really happy when he was able to to finally bring his mother back to the family um and suppose you could talk about sort of how the system split up his family uh and and it ended up taking them from from his mother just by bothering them, you know, just just well, you know well, this, just, Ella, this young widow with all these children. Hmm? Go ahead. According to what 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 we did, I learned word of, when the, on the seventh child, the family memoir of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. When yes. when Earl Senior died, when Earl Senior not he didn't die, he was he was killed. Killed. Yeah. When he was killed, of course the, the uh, nobody would help. Uh, um, Brother Malcolm's mother. No, the black folks were afraid to help them because they had been, they were Garveyites. Brother Malcolm's parents were Garveyites, strong Garveyites. In fact, his mother was the correspondent for the for the Garveyites in newspaper. They were strong Garveyites. This scared the other black folks because they felt as though with them being strong Garveyites, that was going to bring the white folks down on the whole black community because of them. So when he was killed, the black community would have nothing to do with them, and of course the white community had nothing to do with them. So 
in a bind. She had, she had, I think, six children. She was in a real bind, and uh, and basically, uh, she had a. According to Sister Ella, she had a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And when she had a nervous breakdown, uh, a Sister Ella's position was, and I don't know. Again, this is what just what she believed was that she finally decided that you know these people are not going to help me and my children. So the only way that they I'm going to get help from my children is if they think that I am kind of you know kind of kind of out of it. So she kind of even after she recovered, she kind of played this out of it thing because so the system or some kind of way would help her children because she was no longer in a position. Uh, to help them, and then that's that's what happened there. Now that's that was what I got from working on Seven Towers with Sister Ella. Where uh, I have not talked to, had not a chance to talk to any of the siblings to find out about how that went. But that was the, what she did, which which to me made a little bit of sense. Uh, mm-hmm. But because when when he was, as I said earlier, when when Earl Senior was was killed by the by the by the racists, uh, both the the black community were afraid to to be connected with her, and the white community, of course, was hostile because of their connections with Garvey. They were throwing Garvey at, and that was and and that was a big Ku Klux Klan contingent in 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 those you know in those places at that time. You know, so uh, uh, it was. I mean, it was just it was a situation again. And so when I when I hear people again talk about oh his speeches were so harsh and, and he was this and he he was, you have to understand the times in which Brother Malcolm was there what happened with as a child what happened when he was an adult all the all the things that were going on the the, the lynchings the killings the brutality the the denial of basic human rights this stuff was not. Somebody making it up. This was happening. I just went back and looked at that list between 1955 and 1965, when he was most, when he was active on the scene. 24 people, 24 people, were were lynched, and nobody was punished for it. Although they knew who who had done it. In 99% of those cases, they knew exactly who had done it, but nobody was punished. So when you hear Brother Malcolm's speeches, he was responding to that atmosphere. And we're not even talking about the people who were just brutalized, whose homes were firebombed, who who were run out of town, who lost their jobs, who lost their property, whose children were put down with fire hoses and 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 and, and, and police dogs in Birmingham and places like that. I mean, you have, you cannot understand what Brother Malcolm was saying and what he was all about, and what was unless you know the times in which he was operating. That was terrorism, I repeat. That was rampant terrorism going on in this country. And nobody was being published for it. And Brother Malcolm, as he said, he he advocated self-defense. When I go out and speak at colleges, and I've spoken at about 35 colleges across the country, they always raise this. Why did he sound so harsh? And I tell them that. And I said, and by the way, if anybody can come across a statement where Brother Malcolm said, that black people should go out and just start killing white people. I'll give you a hundred dollars. I haven't had to pay yet. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you can't find, you're not going to find nothing like that. Mm-hmm. He talked about self-defense. That black people had a right to defend themselves from the terrorists who were running rampant 
in, in and especially in the South during that time. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, you're at the Bethune Du Bois Institute. Um, what is the, the, the uh, Bethune Du Bois? It's, a, it's an education or it's an education focused organization founded by Dr. C. Dolores Tucker. And we have provided scholarship assistance to students to purchase textbooks. People don't understand how extremely expensive textbooks are. And sometimes students get to college, they get a scholarship or something to college, and then can't afford the textbooks. So we provide, we have provided textbook purchase assistance scholarships to students who are going into college, freshmen. We we published a new a, a journal called Vital Issues: The Journal of African American Speeches, which um, which uh, uh, promotes, pre presents speeches. It's like a black equivalent of vital speeches. And we also conduct public issues forums on critical issues uh, confronting uh, black folks in this country. Uh, so, we, you know, so those are the kind of things that we do as an organization. And I'm the communications consultant with the organization and the editor of the, of the uh, journal. Uh, and by the way, I, I want to leave a, a telephone number for anyone who wanted to contact me would yeah. be two zero two zero two seven one six four five six zero. That's two zero two seven one six four five six zero. Do you want to leave an email address as well? Oh, uh, well, again, you know, I don't want to leave because <laughs> I have an email on my job, and 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 I just, I'm hopefully in the next three months or so, I will know how to use this new stuff. And I'll be able to do it, but I don't want to, because if the young lady, she has to work for the office, and she can't be dealing with a lot of my emails coming in, because I don't know how to pull them myself. So I don't leave an email address. I left a cell phone number. Okay, uh, so that's 202 716 Six zero, yes. Okay, well, super. Well, it's been really wonderful um, uh, talking to you this morning. Um, Reminiscing on Hajj Malik Al Shabazz and his his great work and and uh, his messages, which are still pertinent today, and perhaps we could have you on again um, with Ronell Collins to talk about uh, the seventh child, the family okay. memoir. And thank you again yeah. for for celebrating his birthday like this. Uh, it's tomorrow. Uh, the yeah. birthday be would have been 86 years old, and uh, and and thank you again for for providing me with an opportunity to. To, to show people what I mean when I when I say that he was a master teacher, and there's no more important member of any community than a master teacher. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Okay. Thank you. You take good care. Peace and blessings. Mm-hmm. Same to you. Bye. Bye-bye. So we're going to play a piece by Khalil El-Zabar and Archie Shep called Brother Malcolm. Brother Malcolm, 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 Brother Malcolm,
again, that was Brother Malcolm, Michael Hill, Elza Barr, and Archie Shep. And we are joined in the studio by Yusufu Mosley, uh, who is going to talk to us about this book, uh, which was released April 4th, I believe, um, by Manny Marble, uh, who passed away um, early April. And the book uh, has been um, reviewed quite widely with varying um, commentary, uh, and uh, we want to talk about it. Uh, Yusufu um, holds two degrees, a BA in sociology and an MA in political science with an emphasis on social ethics. He is also a longtime community activist and has worked with various community organizations designed to advance the liberation struggle. Currently, Yusufa works in the social justice field and is a member of several professional organizations related to the criminal justice field in the Chicagoland area. Yusufa is a trained and certified, and certified as a circle keeper in restorative justice field. He has completed 80 hours of restorative justice sponsored by the Community Justice Institute and Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention of Florida Atlantic University. 16 hours of training for community panels for youth as the, at the Children and Family Justice Center of the Northwestern University School of Law, and 100 hour, 120 hours of peacemaking circles for the Living Justice Institute of St. Paul, Minnesota, and the Center for Reconciliation in Chicago, Illinois. And we have him joining us because he is a Malcolm X scholar. And, I mean, if it's been written, if it's been shown in a, in a film, even notes and letters, um, if they're published, he has read it or watched it or listened to it. <laughs> so we're definitely going to have to have you on again, Brother Yusufu, since, um, you know, we sort of have some technical difficulties. And we're not going to be able to have you for a full half an hour. It's like, man, I was cutting it short. <laughs> so let me let you just dive in and talk about this work. Give us the full title of the book and just talk about Ahaj Malik and what he means to you because you are certainly – you might not have known the brother personally, but uh, you are certainly, you know, um, one of his followers and one of the people that take him, his work, uh, yeah. to heart. Well, thank you for all of that, and good morning, and I apologize for being so late. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know where to be. I do know where to begin. One of the things that I want to begin with is Malcolm said in the Marble book, uh, that the devil's strongest weapon is his ability to conventionalize our thought. And I think that that's a key piece because that's what this book is trying to do, conventionalize or make current our thought rather than deal with the historical person that we know as Malcolm X. And uh, it's, it's sad because I, I think I mentioned to you that I had, got, I had email exchanges with Manning Marble and I wanted to know why he chose the title Reinvention because I thought it was such a undercurrent, undercutting kind of term or label to put on uh, such a brother who uh, gave his life for our struggle and our people. And I w was wondering about that, and then I read the book, and I was gravely set back, I'll say. I won't say disappointed because I know he spent a lot of years. I knew five years after he began the project I was aware of it. And I found his email, got it, and tried to stay in touch and that kind of thing. And he wrote me maybe two weeks before uh, his transition, and then the uh, book came out <coughs> uh, telling me, explaining to me why he chose transition, uh, reinvention. And 
by way of conclusion, I would say this is a reinvention of Malcolm in the sense that he's taken him out of context, put him into a method actor kind of mode who could talk to anybody, uh, you know, based on, you know, his acting this out. He wasn't really sincere and all of that kind of thing, although he does mention in the book that Malcolm was sincere, and that's how people looked at him. And uh, it's just a prob- really a problematic book. Uh, too many things, you know, thrown in there for controversy and conversation, and a lot of people been praising, and a lot of people been criticizing, and a lot of people have avoided the argument that I think only Dr. Karinga made, and that it's a philosophical one. And it depends on what philosophy you coming into this study with. And and uh, Dr. Marvel came in with a deconstructionist kind of philosophy. And he de- deconstructed Malcolm and dealt with a whole lot of image-making lies and fairy tales and other things that, you know, they distracted from the message and the meaning of this brother. Right. Yeah, and I remember. That's, that's the whole problem. Yeah, that's re- my whole problem with the book. Right. Yeah, I remember when uh, the book was going to come out, what was really exciting was that he was, going to have the opportunity to see those chapters of the book that Alex Haley didn't yes. include, I think it was because of the publisher, didn't include in the autobiography of right. Malcolm X, uh, you know, the, the definitive work, so to speak, yes. uh, although there have been other other really wonderful works, you know, as I was speaking with uh, A. Right. Peter Bailey, um, the book that he contributed to um, or helped with the writing of uh, the uh, family memoir, which was... Um, written by um, Malcolm X's sister and, and, and uh, son, his nephew. Uh, and then, you know, there's been the book that came out after he was, was killed, which is a compilation of, you know, of essays and sermons and articles about the various periods of his life. And uh, Amir Baraka wrote in a really wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. expose uh, he really, he's such a brilliant uh, writer, and he was going to actually join us, but it didn't work out, but we're going to still try to get yeah. him. <laughs> to well, I had to apologize because I woke him up this morning uh, trying to call him. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, he, you did? Oh, my. Oh, okay. Cause yeah, he, so okay. Yeah, he got in really late because they're having, a, I think it's the second annual Malcolm X Film Festival in uh, in Harlem this okay. week. It started yesterday, started Tuesday. Uh, May 17th, and it's going to continue. It's going to actually part of it's going to be at the Schomburg. The Schomburg is doing something as well on May 19th. But the right. film festival is continuing uh, at a theater that's right there on Malcolm X Boulevard in uh, in in, Har- in, uh, in New York, in Harlem, which is like I think it's so hot. You like to be in the, oh, yeah. on the space, you know, right there, in New York. <laughs> you know, geographically. Where you can like feel the energy of the brother. I'm like, wow, yeah. that is so awesome. But oh well, we just have to do yeah. it. Um, just like and, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> uh, just yeah, to comment on the three different chapters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You no, no, go ahead. It? Yeah, that's where I was going. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, the three missing chapters. They're uh, they're in the possession of an attorney who bought them uh, from the Haley estate uh, back when uh, Haley's they, it was revealed that he hadn't paid taxes and all of that kind of stuff. And the brother bought him, I think, for three hundred thousand dollars. And he can't publish him because of the, you know, the intellectual property thing. And uh, 
So he had them in his safe, and Marvel was able to view those kind of things, those documents. And that's what I thought he was going to uh, put out here for us to see, you know, what his review was. And he mentions them throughout the book, but he trivializes them, I guess. And, and the way he presents them, he sees Malcolm as somebody who's trying to get away from the title black nationalism or black nationalist and be an internationalist of sorts and, you know, a, a person without a country kind of person and a, or a commitment. And he was wavering and he had this problem where he reinvented himself and, you know, tried to be the embodiment of the hustler, trickster, preacher, minister, uh, self-invented person. And he used these as effective ways to reach the masses, not his sincerity, not his uh, sense of responsibility or his ethics that demanded that he do what he was doing. And uh, it's just those things didn't come up. He mentioned them, and I understand that the oldest daughter is supposed to publish them sometime this year, as well as his journals or travel journals when he was in Africa. <coughs> Two particular periods that we don't know about. And the uh, the three minutes, one of the missing chapters is supposed to be on his proposal for unity in the black community, regardless of uh, ideological divisions, based on the Bandung conferences where he was very inspired by that. So the whole thing is that this book, uh, people should read it. They should always read it because there are some things we can get out of it. But avoid these little silly controversies about what kind of cereal he liked to eat in the morning, uh, you know, or if he ate cereal in the morning and that kind of thing because that distracts from the message and meaning of this brother. And he's a model, in my interpretation, a path that we can all follow uh, if we get away from the silly stuff. And there's other, one other book that I'm sure is coming out. I'm not sure when, but uh, that's by Dr. Karinga, who's, who's avoiding this kind of, what did he call it, scavenger history, this bottom-feeding kind of attitude that we some people have developed who tried to explain the brother and not really deal with him. But I start, go back to the same quote where, you know, his ability, the devil's uh, strongest weapon is his ability to conventionalize our thought. And I think that's what's happening here. We've mm -hmm. got to reinvent it, Malcolm, from a brother who spent over 20 years almost doing the kind of research and work that a lot of us are, are unable to do and take apart. And then he deconstructed Malcolm so badly and then put the pieces back in such a bad way that we really have a problem with the book. And I read Baraka's right. piece, which I was impressed with. Mm -hmm. So I'm telling you, right. this, yeah. you know, I'm I'm sorry I missed Brother Bailey and all them because I really would have liked to heard what they had to say. But you know, we oh. we struggle on. It's a good day mm -hmm. to struggle. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just. <coughs> The whole idea we were speaking we were speaking yesterday about the whole um, Western notion of deconstruction and reassembly because the fragment is easier to deal with than the whole and African people are more holistic. Yeah. You know, we we're about the whole people, the whole population, and and Al Haj Malik was about unity, about Umoja, not just one individual, about the whole community. Pan African, not just in this region, you know, Western culture, which includes America and and the Caribbean and the yeah. southern part of this particular hemisphere, as well as those of our people that have been spread out because of the transatlantic or European slave trade, not to mention the colonization 
of our people that never left home, you know. So he was about the whole people as opposed to just a part of it, whereas Western culture, you know, uh, the way we, you know, intellectually, the way we handle things is we take it apart and, like you say, try to put it back together. Uh, And you said, you know, well, they didn't put it back together in a, in a, in a, in a, I don't know, put it back together in a correct way, but why take it apart in the first place except, you know, to study so that you can better understand, not to dissemble, dis, uh, to confuse and distort, which is what comes about a lot of times, and that's what happened with the Marble piece is that it's the image of El Haj Malika is distorted. But in our, in our, since we don't have a lot of time, I, I would like you to talk about because, you, you know, this is a brother you really love, and I want you to have some time to just sort of reflect on what you love about El Haj Malik and, and why you have made it your business to, like, anything he's written, like I said in the beginning, written or been written about him <laughs> or or any film. I mean, I, I rewatch I watch Make It Plain and that whole section, that whole, the whole phrase, Make It Plain, how he always wanted folks, when they introduced him, you know, just yeah. make it plain. Know, like you know, keep keep it keep it simple, keep it succinct. You know, don't go over and over over these other things. You like right. just make it plain so everybody can grasp it. So tell us, you know, what it is about this brother that you love so much. Today. What I love about Malcolm so much is one, uh, his incisiveness and and able to take the complex and make it simple. A lot of us, you know, want to you know talk all day and not really be clear. But Malcolm was very, very clear in what he said, as you just pointed out. He, when he said make it plain, he meant make it plain and not, you know, getting in subterfuge. Another thing I like about him is his discipline. He was very, 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 very disciplined, Zulu-type discipline, where he could, you know, go a distance and keep on going and just keep his sharp focus. Another piece. And then his constant being a student, he always wanted to learn. You know, no avenue was close to him, and I think in the autobiography he said if he had the time, he would like to just sit down and read, you know. But then he didn't say, but I'm sure he meant that he would also want us to know what he read so he can share it with us. And then uh, his commitment to our people, not based on awards or anything, but knowing the history and understanding the history, which was, you know, one of his key phrases of all our studies, history is best qualified to reward all research. And that's the thing that I think that I love. I know I love about him because I'm always reading myself, and especially in history. And then another thing I like about him is his forward vision, and he always tried to face facts, as he put it, uh, no matter you know as they unfolded, not because they were somebody else's facts, but as they unfolded before him. And then the last thing I guess I could say is his ethical kind of stance. It was right for him to do what he did historically, culturally, and socially. As you pointed out, his whole life was one, not of reinvention, but of, of creation, Re, you know, trying to create the categories and the possibilities within those categories for us to advance uh, the liberation struggle. He was the embodiment, as uh, what's his, uh, Ossie Davis called him, our black prince. Not, not because he... Uh, spotted riots or anything like that, but because he provided us with an incisive way of looking at the world and acting and thinking in the world. And I think that that's mm-hmm. key to all of what we do. We can talk all day, but if we're not practicing what we're talking, 
then we're not talking. We're not really doing anything but uh, absorbing more air for useless conversation. And I think that this 600-page book gives us a little insight, but not as much as I expected. I'm telling you, I was really looking forward to seeing this, and now that I've seen it, I don't want to see it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, right. you know, his tra- his ability to transform himself into the kind of person, human being, African that he was supposed to be, because as you point out, he he tried to be holistic in his presentations and make it plain mm-hmm. so we wouldn't get lost. And he was talking to, when I say we, I mean us, uh, people and people that he loved and gave his life to for, willingly, not reluctantly. Right. So all yeah. of that kind of stuff is what I would say. I'm going to let you stay in the studio. I'm going to um, welcome on... Uh, Abraham Burton, how are you? Hey, how's it going? All right. Good morning, brother. Oh, good. All right. Uh, Abraham, meet uh, Yusufu Mosley uh, from Chicago right now. Yes, sir. Good morning, brother. Good morning. How are you doing, brother? It sounds oh. beautiful, everything you were just talking about, you know? Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Love that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tell. We can feel it, you know? Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, Abraham is going to be coming um, to the San Francisco Bay Area for the Malcolm X Jazz Arts Festival. Is it the tenth one, uh, Abraham? I'm sorry. Is it the tenth anniversary of the Malcolm X Jazz Arts Festival? You know, I'm not 100 percent sure what uh, what anniversary it is, but I know that I had did it uh, last year, or, or maybe perhaps it was the year before. And it's a wonderful festival, oh. you know. Oh, so you're returning? Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was there. I think oh. it was two years ago, and it was just all the different activities that they had going on. It was so positive. I remember speaking to some of the people. I mean, everyone was there, and everyone was really having a good time. They had uh, all types of um, different events for all people, all ages, all colors, you know, all ethnic backgrounds. I mean, it was it was really happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, and um, and and you're in New York right now, where the uh, Malcolm X Film Festival just kicked off yesterday, and uh, it's tonight and tomorrow you're going to be leaving. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I won't be able to attend any of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to uh, tell our audience a little bit about you. Um, that uh, see, uh, Abraham Burton's Cause and Effect, the album Spiritually Spirituality Folk Sounds attained his buoyancy and gravity through the group's striking rhythmic fluency, driving on infectious, hypnotic, shape-shifting vamps. Uh, and that's a review from Arne Bremer of Jazz Times. We're going to actually play the title track of that at the end of the conversation, Cause and Effect. <laughs> cool, cool, In a very cool. rare and important visit to the Bay Area, saxophonist Abraham Burton, along with bassist Eric Rivas and drummer Nasheed Waits, brings bring their dynamic trio to the Eastside Culture Center on Sunday, May 22nd. Well, on Saturday, May 21st, they will be performing at the uh, Malcolm X Jazz Arts Festival, which starts at 11 o'clock and is at uh, San Antonio Park, which is located on 19th Avenue and Foothill in sort of like the San Antonio Foothill area of Oakland. And it's a big park. It takes up a few blocks, and it's a free event, and it's just, oh, my goodness, as Abraham was remembering, reflecting, it's just it's fun for the whole family, and as you're having fun, you can also pick up information at the nonprofit booth and learn how you can get involved in changing your community. Because you know Malcolm X was all about change and revolution, yeah. mm-hmm. as well as the Mojo. So you know Malcolm X Jazz Arts, we're not just having fun; we are like 
using art for social change and social activity and action. So, it, you know, that's all a part of this, too. As you eat really good food because there are food vendors or you, you know, sit some rhymes on on that stage or you dance right. um, or you just sit in the grass, just, just relax with your folks and just, you know, on the main stage. It's just really, really wonderful all-day event um, that... You know, you just leave feeling so full uh, and and so satisfied. It's just fabulous. <laughs> yeah, good energy out there. Can you send sure. some of that to Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, we could use it in New York as well. You know, <laughs> yes, sir. but that's great. Um, you know, and it's good that we we call forth the memory of this brother, not just the you know icon or. The, the, well, I forget all the labels they don't put on my brother. Um, but as a model, as a pathway we can walk, mm. I think we need to really stress that because we keep looking at this model of this person as if he's some kind of, he was less than what we are or or something more maybe, you know, divine. Some people want to make him God. Uh, but I think that we need to really make him who he was and who he, what he means to us. Because if we don't, we'll get another reinvented one in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Abraham, you're a New York native and you're a graduate of LaGuardia High School of the Performing Arts, and you pursued your development toward a life in music under the mentorship and guidance of the great Jackie McLean mm-hmm. at the University of Hartford's Heart School of Music, where you received your bachelor's degree in music and learned from Mr. McLean the importance of studying jazz history. And then by the early 90s, your professional career was launched with the renowned drummer Art Taylor. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> what a wonderful drummer. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful musician and artist. Oh. Anyway, you never look back. <laughs> you worked with John Hicks. Oh, my God. I love John Hicks. Rashid Ali. Oh, another wonderful drummer. We, we really miss him. Horace Tapscott. Oh, my goodness. Mark Carey. Mark Carey is so hot. We love him. Um, <laughs> Michael Carvin and many others. Two men were staying. And you're also um, a part of the Lewis Hayes group. Another wonderful drummer. And the Mingus Big Band, which comes here a lot, y'all like yeah. us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and your own ensemble has been recorded on the Engine Records, and your most recent release um, in 2010 is widely applauded, self produced outing entitled Future Dimensions. And on that one, I believe you have a piece for your daughter, right? Oh, I do. That's right. I do, yeah. Yeah, Amina. Right, Amina. right. And you also, and you perform on the alto sax, um, I mean, soprano sax. In this particular piece, so um, I want to let you start talking, Abraham. I just love your name, Abraham. Wow, <laughs> great prophet. <laughs> so, so talk about talk about your music. Talk about Hajj Malik, because you're like there where he was. Oh my God. Well, you know, it's funny um, when I think of uh, you know, well, in the music world, I can remember the first time uh, I believe I had went up to the University of Hartford and. Mm-hmm. I was just visiting at the time, and, and Jackie McLean, uh, who's actually his birthday was just on the 17th. He, he, uh, oh, wow. He, yeah, 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 and he's, I think he's already been gone some five <laughs> years now, I think, you know. But yeah. I remember something, uh, a little story that could relate to this very well, actually. I remember I was just looking around the dorm, because at that time, at the University of Hartford in Hartford, Connecticut, I believe, I mean, I could be, don't quote me on this, but I, I believe that the black community um the probably the percentage was under 10% at that time 
you know, I think there might have been just a handful of uh, African-American students, you know. So um, I remember we were looking around, and, you know, coming from New York, uh, it's very diverse here in New York. So uh, going up there was, uh, it was almost, to be quite honest, a little bit of a culture shock just because uh, also the, just where the mindset was of the students, you know, uh, coming from wherever they were coming from and where I was coming from, it was completely different. But I can remember recalling going in one of the dorms, and on the wall it had a picture of Malcolm X uh, with his face crossed out, and it said, um, what it, I think it said something to the effect like, Malcolm X was a, was a militant leader or a militant man or something like that of yeah. something in that effect and and uh I remember that that had bothered me and I went to Jackie McLean because he was the whole reason why I was going up there in the first place and he was trying to you know at that time coerce me to, to me and Eric McPherson to join him up there to help you know fatten out the the uh, curricul the um the uh African American department you know so uh when we went up the, and I saw that and I brought it up to his attention, I was like, well, what is, you know, what's going on up here? What kind of, you know, what what kind of uh, attitudes or ideas do the people have up here? You know, and I remember he sat me down and I remember he was, he was just explaining to me, he says, listen, Abe, he said, there's a lot of things uh, going on in the world and, and you can't, you can't let, these things deter you from what it is you want to do in life, you know. Yeah, and right. he said, whatever the mentality is of these people up here, he was like, that's all the more reason why you we can we can use you up here, and we need you to be up here to uh, represent, you know, the community and to be a positive role model and to be a diligent student and to do your very best and so on and so forth. And I remember that after that. I said to myself, okay, I'm going to I'm going to attend the school and I'm going to see what it's all about. And it was a very difficult environment to deal with uh, and uh but I remember I stuck very close to Jackie McLean and his and as much as he was all about music, I think he was even more it was more of an urgency for him to pass down a lot of um a lot of very important facts and uh, about history. And and uh, it was very important for the music for you as a, for you know the student as a as a human as a as a person, but also just to be able to have that knowledge and then to take that knowledge and pass it on as well. So I remember Jackie McLean was always I mean in his classes he had uh, the African American history course that was mandatory for us to uh, take, and you're supposed to take it for one year. I took it all four years okay. that I was there. You know, and wow. um, yeah, because it was mind blowing. And to be honest with you, I, I have to be totally honest. I had I had heard things about Malcolm X uh, or people, you know, uh, a lot of the great leaders, but it wasn't until I got to Jackie McLean's course uh, to, to the school that I really was exposed to what how important these figures were. In uh, not only in um, our history, but in world history, and how they really yeah. had an impact and affected so so many different um, nations, really. With especially, and of course, we're talking about um, Malcolm X here, and his 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 uh, contribution was Hello. unparalleled in so many ways. Of course, I didn't know him as a person. I was uh, he died way before I was born, but the things that uh, I had exposed myself to, learning about him after. The fact. I mean, it was it was uh, unparalleled, really. 
sounds like right. my journey it's, almost. It's gorgeous. Oh, my God. Brother Amiri Baraka, how are you this morning? Uh, I'm all right. How are you doing? Hello? Yes, yeah. I'm here. Oh, sorry. He's in the studio, but I can't hear him. Yeah, I'm on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe he'll say something and we'll hear him. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm here. So, Abraham. Yes. He's he's Hello. announcing Hello? he's here, Wanda. I'm sorry? Hello? Yes. Yes. I'm yeah, this is Baraka on the phone. Hey, I'm Mary Baraka. How you doing? <laughs> okay. Oh, great. <laughs> and I, I apologize for waking you this morning, my brother. <laughs> well, I was up. I just didn't get to the phone. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, some. Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I was just saying how uh, important that that was in uh, definitely in the curriculum in Jackie McLean's curriculum, just the history in general of mm. uh, the lineage of this music and the, just the history, you know, American history, yeah. the real story of American history. Mm. Yep, it's yeah. same with me. I grew up in in, uh, in 1966. I was alerted to who that Malcolm by my high school geography teacher. And uh, ever since then, I've been, everything I can get, read, or whatever, I get, read, and whatever, uh, to understand this brother and his contribution to our people and our struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amir Baraka, are you with us? Yes. Oh, super. Oh, this is so exciting. Oh, wow. Um, Yusufu uh, Mosley is in the studio along with Abraham Burton. You probably know Abraham. Abraham, do you know um, Brother sure. Amiri Baraka? Oh, yes, very, very well. Yes, yes sure. very much so. <laughs> very supportive, uh, Brother. I always has been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow, wow, so wonderful. We only have like 12 minutes left. So, um, Brother Baraka, could you um, yes. could you share with the audience, um, you know, some, some reflections on Malcolm X, Brother Malcolm, on the eve of his his birthday. Well, you know, I I met Malcolm once uh, in a hotel room with a brother named uh, Mohammed Fabu, who was uh, one of the people who led the revolution in Zanzibar, and who then helped put together what was called what is called now the Republic of Tanzania, which was combining Tanganyika and Zanzibar. And he had come to the United States, come to New York to speak at the UN for the new state and uh, I met him in that hotel room. It was his hotel room, Malcolm was there and uh, we talked until the morning, you know uh, you know, Malcolm was one of the greatest persons in my life. You know, I think the two greatest persons in my life politically have been Malcolm X and Fidel Castro, you know, I think for that for that generation of mine who was growing up, you know, uh that those were the the two people. And then when Fidel was smart enough to uh actually come up to Harlem and actually uh be in the Teresa Hotel and meet with Malcolm, you know, that confirmed for me that this man was a great leader. Mm-hmm. And and Malcolm throughout his life always provided for us an alternative to uh, because we grew up watching the civil rights movement, you know, and although although we loved Dr. King, uh 
down in uh, Montgomery when, uh, you know, they blew up his house after the bus boycott. And, you know, the black people showed up with the rifles. Dr. King, what should we do? Dr. King said, uh, you know, if any blood be shed, let it be ours. You know, that wasn't, I wasn't with that, you know, that <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't with that, you know what I mean. So it was Malcolm who, 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 who really appeared. Uh, I guess 1960, Malcolm, uh, that 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 Mike Wallace thing, and Mike, you know, Malcolm say you treat people like they treat you. Mm. They treat you with respect. You treat them with respect. They put their hands on you, send them to the cemetery. And mm. my whole generation said, Amen. That sounds. Very profound, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that was that was what set us rolling. And then remember, that was a, a period of great struggle, great turmoil. I don't think there would have been a, a, a Barack Obama without uh, Malcolm X and Dr. King, you know what I mean, and Stanley Lohan. Mm-hmm. People, you know, a particular impact. Excuse me? Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, ask your question, but go ahead. No, that's all I was going to say is that 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 generation, that decade of uh, people fighting is what permitted somebody like Obama. You know, those, some of the things he's done disappoint me. But still, I remember George Bush. <laughs> and I see that lineup of fools. They got front of the Republican Party, so... Uh, you just got to grin and bear it at this point, you know. But I, I'm just saying now. My my memory of Malcolm is that he was one of the one of the true uh, leaders of that period, who provided a concrete, practical way of dealing with the United States: self determination, self respect, and self defense. Yeah, and that always struck me as very clear. I was just going to ask, you know, what was it like to sit in, in, in the same room and talk all night with uh, Brother Minister Malcolm? You know, you, I, all I have was the tapes and speeches and things. Hmm. It's something that you, you know, remember all your life. See, that's why I'm able to recite it that clearly now because, see, I went in there and I was being super militant. I was going to put down in an ACP and all that. And Malcolm said, no, you you need to you need to be trying to join them. You need to be trying to get them to go in a more progressive direction. You know, the, the the most important thing Malcolm said is the value of developing a united front because, you know, he was out of the nation then. And right. he began to understand the, 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 the profundity of trying to build a united front of various kinds of ideological, uh, you know, uh, groups and directions because he had come to the conclusion that no single uh, ideological, uh, you know, direction would be strong enough to fight, I mean, to win the struggle that we were fighting. And it's ironic that the last time I saw Dr. King, I talked to Dr. King a week before he was killed, and he said the same thing. And Sukla Carmichael always said the same thing. We need a united front. We have to get these people to drop their sectarianism and agree on what the most important things we have to accomplish jointly and strive to do that. Wow. So, thank you for that. 
Yeah, no, no, that's to me. Mm-hmm. I was saying no, that, that was the most important thing to me was that. Uh, yeah, it's New York, but I don't know the number. Uh, yeah, that, I'm just saying that was the most important legacy in my mind, intellectual legacy in my mind, you know, and uh, it's something that we have to take up. See, the, the thing about United Front, without some kind of United Front, Obama wouldn't be the president now. He had 90%, he had 90% Afro-American, 60, 60, 65% Latino, 60% Asians, and that group of progressive white people, and all of those are minorities, <laughs> but that's the... Uh, that's the coalition. That's the united front you need to keep uh, American politics in motion. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for that, um, Brother Amir. Yeah. yeah I, I was wondering, and um, we only have a few minutes left. I was wondering in um, in our closing comments. I was wondering if if uh, uh, Abraham and uh, Brother Baraka, who uh, in particular, if you could reflect on. The impact of of Malcolm, Brother Malcolm, and politics on 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 your work, you know, your artistic work, uh, and um, and and on your life, you know. So, if you said, um, Brother Baraka, that that this is like a, a moment that you'll never forget, and you've you've lived through a lot of movements. Um, I mean, quite a few movements. Uh, you've seen um, revolutionary movements in this country uh, come and go and come and go. And I was wondering if you could sort of reflect on on that and uh, the revolutionary movement, the black arts movement in particular, you know, which, uh, you played a real pivotal role, but then you've got, you know, quite a few other movements that have come and gone that you've also had your stamp in. So if you could sort of maybe... Um, Give but the, the Panthers some kind of context. Mm-hmm. Well, the Panthers actually are Malcolm's children, uh, just mm-hmm. like SNCC was Malcolm's, uh, you know, outgrowth of Malcolm and the organization that I led, the Congress of African People. All those are, uh, are Malcolm's children. Those are people directly influenced by Malcolm X. And it's interesting that this week uh, there are all kinds of programs in light of his birthday coming up the 19th, but also uh, in light of the fact that their book, a book came out by Manning Marable called, uh, you know, what is it, uh, you know, uh, Malcolm X, Life Reinvention, yeah, which I, you know, am not thrilled with that book. I mean, I'm, you know, because it's, it's, see, I give you in a nutshell what I think about the book. See, Marable, who's an academic, and on the left, he thinks, never understands the black liberation movement, although he can appreciate the social democrats, the communist party, this and that. But the impact that the black liberation movement had, you understand whether it was Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or the Panthers or the Congress of African People of SNCC, he never appreciates the, the impact that the Black Liberation Movement, which no matter what how what anybody else might say, our book learning about you know Marx and Lenin, Mao, and so forth, the most profound impact on American society is the Black Liberation Movement, mm. and that that I think is what is missing because you think that you know just uh, 
telling us different kind of odd facts or non-facts or rumors about Malcolm, which you got from the FBI, you know, CIA, uh, boss of the New York Police Department. You understand? First of all, you can't even believe that stuff. If you think that you can just get uh, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, commentary from those groups, who basically are opposed to black liberation, you know, if you think you can be successful. At one time, my wife and I got 3,000 pages at 10 cents a page. And she pointed out, she said, well, look, that stuff they got blacked out and that stuff they let you see. How do you know that that stuff they let you see is not not there to... uh, disorganize you or send you in the wrong direction, you know. And that's what I would say, you know, how are you going to sit on a whole bunch of papers provided by the very enemies of your people? And also, I guess, by some enemies from the Nation of Islam who had just, you know, kicked Malcolm out. How do you think you're going going to sit on that paper and that's going to help define a person whose known qualities we understand? You understand his known qualities, the, the actual leadership of the Black Liberation Movement. We understand that, and the politics of that. So don't come up with some kind of odd tidbits from uh, uh, the forces of repression that are supposed to give us, that are supposed to make uh, Malcolm more human, because that's actually negative. You know, so that that's my take on it. There was a, there was a panel last night at uh, a museum, uh, film house in Harlem. There's one Thursday at the Schomburg. Uh, There's one at uh, uh, Oberia Dempsey's church on Thursday. And I think that's the best thing about that book is it's causing Malcolm's name to be raised again with fierce, you know, uh, dialogue around it. I think that's the most important thing the book has done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, thank you. Um, closing thoughts, uh, Abraham, about well, about uh, art and politics? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just amazing. You know, I, I listen, obviously, again, I, I'd never had the the uh, the opportunity to meet or really have any interaction with Brother Malcolm X, but <clears throat> just through readings, you know, materials, his speeches, whatever things I've seen or learned or talked to, you know, great people like Mr. Baraka, you know, um, listening to the experiences they've had, you know, it seems like it just seems there's so many qualities um, that Malcolm had and and contributed to um, to our world, really, you know. And uh, I think one thing that really stands out for me as a kind of an outsider in that respect, it is just to really what he personified, what he, what he, uh, how he, the changes he made within himself, and how he he projected those things. You know, it, it makes you really have to uh, reflect on who you are and what you want to be, and to educate oneself, and to not only and and not to only educate yourself, but to then pass it along so that it grows and spreads, so that there's more awareness. You know, and it also gives you more strength as an individual and as a, a, 
really a people, you know, and I'm talking about of all people, you know, and I think that that definitely has impacted my life quite a bit and my music as well because I have a great pride in my music and, and what I want yeah. to represent and who I want to be and the message I want to convey as Abraham Burton, you know, in this music, in this art form, which is an African-American art form, you know, and uh, and it has lost a lot of those qualities. I know we don't have a whole lot of time to get into all of that, but it, it really has lost a lot of the qualities uh, in which it had, which it was based off of and, and where it came mm. from, you know. But that's, again, a whole other topic and a whole other conversation uh, that would take a, a little more time to get into. But um, that's that's definitely how I, I feel, and I appreciate so much, you know, these gentlemen here, their, what they, you know, all that they've said and their experiences. I'm just soaking it up, really. I'm enjoying it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Well, we'll have to have, we'll have, to have a reprise of this um, because uh, we are sort of over time. And uh, I was thinking, Abraham, would you like us to close with Amina or uh, Nebulae? Oh, wow. Maybe the song I wrote for my daughter would, could be nice. She'll feel good to okay. know that that was played. <laughs> okay. That's very great right. music, wanna, by the way. Thank yeah. You, thank you. I want to thank you so much, um, uh, Brother Baraka and uh, yeah. Yusufu, for joining us today. And Abraham, have a safe journey yeah. uh, to the West Coast. See you good soon. Luck, See you soon. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. Good luck, thank Abraham. You. All right. All right. Peace and blessings. Peace and blessings.